Well, I want to render a public thanks to God that it does seem to be springtime, <laughs> finally. Um, I am from South Louisiana, and they've been celebrating spring for a month and a half at this point. The azaleas have come and gone, but it starts to f it's starting to feel like uh, the time is finally here for us, and I am so grateful for this. I am thinking of that song. Uh, there's nothing like the Southland in the, there's something about the Southland in the springtime where the waters flow with confidence and reason. Though I miss her when I'm gone, it won't ever be too long till I'm home again to spend my favorite season. When God made me born a Yankee, he was teasing. <laughs> That's for my wife. She's from the South, but she was born in Rhode Island. When God made me born a Yankee, he was teasing. There's no place like home and none more pleasing than the Southland in the springtime. Amen to that. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have embedded in the very creation itself months and seasons and years. And there is a message of dying and rising all around us, all the time bearing witness to this great gospel that there is a dying and rising Savior who loved us and gave himself for us and who lives even now and is coming again one day to make all things new. Father, we confess and know that the regularity of the seasons and the days and the years, the sun rising and setting, it gets colder and then warmer green, and then dark. All of these things happen because you are upholding them. And you have said that seed time and harvest, summer and winter, will all come from you. So Lord, your hand is evident all around us. Father, I pray we would live our lives in a way that reflects that. I pray that this church would bear witness to the world in a way that reflects that. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us now from your word, that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. My dad once told me a story about a time when he was in college. He and some friends were asked to sing a quartet during his church's worship service. And while they, when they were rehearsing for this special song that they were supposed to sing, there was this moment when something funny happened near the beginning of the song. So they all had this good laugh, and then they went on and they finished rehearsing the song. They thought that that was the end of it until they got into the actual worship service. The music started, they began singing, but when they got to that certain point near the beginning of the song where they had had a good laugh during rehearsal, they got the giggles. Now, have you ever gotten the giggles uh, and not been able to get rid of them? It just you know, won't go away. And sometimes it's amplified if you're standing in front of a bunch of people and you can see them you know, sort of getting tickled at you. Well, that's what happened. 
to these guys next. They tried to sing through their laughing, but it just didn't work. It only got worse until all four of them began cracking up, standing on the stage in front of the whole church. And get this, they never got it back together. The track kept on playing the music and they stood in front of the congregation and they laughed the whole way through the rest of the song. They could not get a hold of themselves. And so the, the music finally stops. They stop laughing and they just sort of slink off stage in this walk of shame. Now, how many people do you think were edified by the special music on that Sunday morning? Now, I guarantee you that there were probably many people who were entertained, at least those who weren't scandalized, because it is kind of funny to watch four guys in college lose their composure for four minutes with a soundtrack behind them. <laughs> but even if people were entertained, they probably weren't edified. Now, why is that? Because edification comes from bearing witness through the use of words. And... They were standing there laughing. They couldn't produce any words, only laughter. How many worship services are undermined week in and week out in churches across the land for this very reason? And I don't mean that worship is undermined all the time by four guys laughing at the, at, you know, as, as the center of attention. That's not what I'm talking about, although that actually does happen in certain churches and on purpose. That's another sermon for another time. But um, what, what I mean is that worship is often undermined in churches because communication through words, through the word, is undermined. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 19, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. What does he mean by that? He would rather say something that people can understand so that they can receive instruction and learn. But where there is no understanding, there is no instruction. And where there is no instruction, there is no edification. And that was the problem that was going on in Corinth. And that's the problem in too many churches today. Instead of worship consisting in clear communication of God's word, God's word just in various kinds of ways just gets set aside. And no one is instructed. How many times have you been to a church service where the Bible wasn't even read? How many times have you sat through sermons that had no Bible at all in it? I mean, maybe the guy reads a verse at the beginning, but then he tells stories for half an hour. How many times have you sung worship choruses with words that sound more like love songs than tributes to a holy God. When those kinds of things happen, what you are seeing is other things and interests choking out the centrality of God's revelation to his people. And that must never be in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it must never be in, in this church. And yet, it appears that this is exactly what was happening in Corinth. And it's precisely the reason that Paul is writing to correct them. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 40. And as we saw in the first part of this chapter, the believers in Corinth were making much of the gift of tongues. And yet, there was tongues 
speaking without interpretation going on in their worship services, which meant that nobody was being edified by the word of God because nobody could understand the word of God. But now in this last half of the chapter, we find out that there was also no order in their worship. There's no interpretation, but there's also no order to their worship. It's very disorderly. People appear to be prophesying and speaking in tongues all at once in this cacophony of sound. And Paul is writing to tell them no more of this. This is not how we are going to do it. So Paul's going to correct them and set them in the right direction. But in order to confront what they're doing, Paul is going to make basically three lines of argument. Okay, so here's the three points for, for the sermon. He's going to talk about tongues as judgment in verses 20 through 25. He'll talk about worship as orderly in 26 through the first part of 33. And then he'll talk about women as silent in verses, the second part of verse 33 through verse 40. So tongues as judgment, worship as orderly, women as silent. Take a look at, at verse 20. Tongues as judgment. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Now, this is an interesting command to put right at the beginning of this passage. Did the Corinthians have a high view of themselves or a low view of themselves? Now, for, for those of you who've been following along during this series of, for, on 1 Corinthians, you already know the answer to that question. They had a pretty high view of themselves. Remember Paul in chapter 4 saying, you've already become kings without us. They already thought of themselves as pretty wise and as pretty versed in the faith. They thought they were really spiritual. They probably already thought of themselves as mature in their thinking. And yet here's Paul telling them to grow up. Don't be children in the way that you think about these things. Be mature. But when it comes to evil, be like infants, which means be like an infant in the sense that you, you have no firsthand experience with evil. You remain inexperienced in that department, but very experienced in the way of godly wisdom. What does Paul want them to be mature about? Because he says he wants them to be mature. We'll look at verse 21. He says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, notice, first of all, the reference to the law, which we understand in this case to be a shorthand not technically narrowly to Moses' writings, but I think he's using it more generally to the Old Testament, to refer to the Old Testament. And uh, so think about what he's saying then. He's saying, you need to seek out maturity, but where do you find this kind of maturity? Where do you find this kind of wisdom? You find it from the Word of God. And, this is where, and that is where Paul is finding it and confronting their fixation on the gift of tongues. I want you to be mature. Now let me quote to you from Scripture. What does he quote? He quotes from Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 11, where um, we just heard it read a moment ago. But this is where God is confronting the northern kingdom of Israel and threatening to bring the Assyrians upon them to destroy Israel in judgment. When the Assyrians conquer the Israelites, what's going to happen? They're not going to be speaking Hebrew, which is what the Jews spoke. Um, they will come with their own language and the Hebrews won't understand them. But that lack of linguistic understanding won't keep them from being conquered. 
So the Jews can't say, hey, Assyrians, just wait a minute out here at the gate. Hold on a minute. Would you please take an HSL class? That means Hebrew is a second language. Please take HSL before conquering us. No, they would be conquered and they would be subject to a pagan people speaking a foreign tongue. And so the bottom line is this. When the Jews see the streets of their city filled with tongues speaking that they cannot understand, it will not be a sign of God's blessing, but a sign of God's judgment on them because the Assyrians have conquered them when that happens. So notice that the, com the comparison that Paul is making here when he quotes from Isaiah 28, 11. He's saying that an untranslated tongue in the Corinthian church is no different than what happened when the Assyrians conquered the Israelites. It's a sign of God's judgment, not of his blessing. In what way is it a sign of his judgment? We'll look at the next verse. Verse 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, it's obvious here that when he says tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, it's obvious that he means an untranslated tongue is a sign for unbelievers. Just like the unintelligible tongues of the Assyrians are a judgment on an unbelieving Israel, so also untranslated tongues are a sign of God's judgment on unbelievers. But he says that prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, it's, it's interesting to note here, a lot of your translations will say prophecy is a sign of something. That word sign actually doesn't appear in the Greek text, though some people think it's implied from its presence in the first half of the text. I think there's good reason to say, no, he's not implying that. He's just talking about tongue. He's talking about prophecy being um, for... Um, that, that's not what he's doing here. He's talking about prophecy being a, a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believe, not being a sign, but just being for unbe not for unbelievers, but for believers. I'm sorry, I'm confusing that here. Um, so what's going on here? The question then remains, in what way are tongues a sign of judgment for unbelievers? And in what way is prophecy for believers? Paul answers that question in the next two verses. Look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? When someone who is not a believer or perhaps someone who is just interested, though maybe not yet a believer, when somebody like that comes into a church and hears an untranslated tongue, what are they going to think? they're going to think that the tongue speakers are crazy. Why? Because the lack of understanding renders their speech gibberish to the uninitiated listener. So think about this. There's an example of this that we've seen already in Scripture. What happened to those people in Jerusalem at Pentecost who heard tongues when they were being spoken there in Acts chapter 2? Now, we know some of the people heard about the mighty deeds of God being spoken in their own language, and it was, a, it was a miracle. It was a gift of tongues, and some people, because they knew the language, they understood what was being spoken. But there were many others who were there who concluded that the people speaking in tongues were drunk. They didn't attribute what they were hearing to the Spirit, but to strong drink. And so the foreign language speaking sounded like they were out of their minds. Thus, they were, those people 
They didn't respond in faith. They were alienated from the Spirit, not conversant with what the Spirit was saying at that moment. And in that sense, the tongue speaking was a sign of judgment upon them because they could not understand. But the same is not true with the gift of prophecy. Notice what he says in verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. Prophesy, in this case, is a spirit-inspired utterance declaring the word of God in the natural language of the original hearers. Because everyone can comprehend the words being spoken, they are not going to conclude that the speaker is crazy. They are going to conclude something else altogether, something much better is going on. And he tells you what they're going to conclude in verse 25. What happens when they hear language that they can understand? The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Prophecy is for believers in this sense. It edifies believers in the sense that Paul has already explained in the first half of the chapter, which we looked at last time. But prophecy is also for making unbelievers into believers. It is for them too. They can be convicted by God's word. They can come to worship the true and living God. Prophecy is for believers and for the making of believers. That's what I think he means when he says prophecy is for believers. But untranslated tongues cannot function in that way. The unbeliever stays an unbeliever without a translation of the tongue, and the tongue is a sign of judgment for that unbeliever. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a dinner with some guests on the campus at Boyce College, and there was a family of six people sitting at my table with me. It was a mom and a dad and four children, and they were just as sweet as they could be visiting the campus. The mom and the dad were hoping to become students at Boyce College, but then when I started talking to them, it became very clear that English was their, not their first language. I'm not even sure if it was their second language. Whatever it was, they were not very good at English yet. So for a long time, there's this great sound all around us because everybody's eating and talking. We're in a big room. They're on campus. So it's hard to hear. And on top of that, we've got this language barrier going on, and they're kind of stumbling their way through English. So for a long time, I tried to communicate with them, but it just went almost nowhere. Finally, we gave up communicating, and we just sat there in silence toward each other. So the language barrier was a relationship barrier, and we just couldn't get through it. The same thing is true with an untranslated tongue in the context of a worship service. The language barrier is a relationship barrier, except in this case, we're not talking about two people trying to talk to one another. What we're talking about in this case of tongues is the one you're trying to hear from is God. Without the translation, you can't hear his word. Without hearing him, you can't know him. And the uninitiated or the unbeliever stays an unbeliever. And so that's why, for that reason, um, I've already explained here in our, in our church, we're not looking for the gift of prophecy or tongues to be still operating. We won't go through that whole sermon again. You can listen to that one 
uh, in the archives on the website if you want. Um, but it does have an application for our worship because what that means is that we don't want to do anything in our worship service which might hinder the clear understanding of the Word of God. Anything less than clearly setting forth what the Word of God says, anything less than that is like judgment on the unbeliever or the uninitiated who is, who's listening. It leaves them in their unconverted state, which I think is really fascinating here because Paul seems to think that two things can be happening at once in any giving, given worship service. A worship service can be speaking to believers and be edifying them, and at the same time, convicting and calling the unrepentant to faith. Now, that's, that, that sort of ought to reorient the way that we think about what we're doing here. It means that we believe that God's revelation is relevant not only to believers, but also to unbelievers. And the key is to get that revelation to them. So Paul talks about, in verses 20 to 25, he talks about tongues as judgment. And he says that an untranslated tongue, that's not what we want. We want people to have understanding. But the second thing he talks about is worship as orderly. Everybody look at verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now, notice the setting that Paul has in mind, obviously, is corporate worship, because he says, when you come together, so it's the people of God gathering together. What happens when they come together? Well, he says that there are a variety of speech contributions that can be made for the edification of the church. He talks about a hymn. So we think about singing, right? He talks about a lesson, which is like a teaching, okay? Somebody takes a previously given revelation and teaches on it. It's like preaching. Somebody has a revelation. I think that would be something like a prophecy. What those first three items have in common is that they are all spoken in the native language of the hearers. But included in that list also, at the end, are tongues and in the interpretation of tongues. Paul says that all of them have to be done in order to edify the church. And that is precisely why the interpretation of tongues is included at the end. The only way for tongues to edify is for the congregation to understand them. But lack of interpretation is not the only way that understanding might be inhibited. And that's what Paul's about to explain. Everyone speaking at once also inhibits understanding. And that's why Paul says what he says next in verse 27. He says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, or at most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. So now, not only must there be an interpretation of the tongue, there must also be an orderly one-by-one -one process. If everyone speaks at once, no one will be understood. So Paul says, one at a time, please. Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now, this is a command from the Apostle Paul saying, Corinthians, somebody in there, you're gifted, you got the gift of tongues, you don't have an interpreter, be quiet. Nobody should hear that. It's not going to help anybody. Quiet if there's no interpreter. 
The interpretation is so central to this gift's use within the church that without interpretation, the speaker must keep it to himself and to God. But now Paul explains that the same principle of orderliness also applies to prophecy. Now, just keep in mind, the same principle of orderliness applies because these gifts are related. We, we talked about this last time, but a prophecy is a spirit-inspired utterance. A tongue is a spirit-inspired utterance. What's the only difference between the two? One of them is in a language you do understand, and one of them is in a language you don't understand, but you've been supernaturally given the, the ability to speak that language in order to offer this utterance. So the, the rules here of orderliness apply to both because they're, a translated tongue is the virtual equivalent of, of a prophecy. But he says this about prophecy. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Only two or three should be up at a time. And the others are supposed to weigh what is said. Now that word translated as weigh is a word for judgment. It's a word that denotes to evaluate by paying careful attention to something, to evaluate it, to judge it. So the prophecies don't just come out and everybody goes, okay, that's it. No, there's actually people that are called on to judge those prophecies to see if they are really from God. Who is supposed to be doing the judging? Well, he uses the word, he says, the others. Some people think the others just refer to all the believers in the congregation. I, that, that's possible. Um, but I think the others maybe more likely refers to the other prophets in the congregation. And the reason I think that is because of verse 30, it talks about, use the same, uses the same word for another, and it talks about another person receiving a revelation from God. And that other per person in that, in that sense is obviously a prophet. But here's the thing. Why do they need to be judging these prophecies? Because that's how you tell whether or not someone is a true or a false prophet, whether their prophecies come true. You all remember uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verses 20 to 22, this was the norm in the Old Testament. Uh, Moses says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that, that same prophet shall die. You don't speak uh, as if you're speaking from God and you're just making up stuff out of your head. It better be a word from God. And if you say in your heart, how may we know whether the word that the... Um, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? How do we know if we got a false prophet on our hands? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So the, Moses gave the Old Testament people of God a means by which to judge prophecies. And some prophecies were true, some were false. Some prophets were true, some were false. How do you know a true prophet from a false prophet? You judge his prophecy. Same thing is going on here, except there's more than one criterion of judging prophecies. Because in the judgment of prophecies, it's not always just telling whether or not they come true. Sometimes you can just judge it by whether or not it's consistent with the apostolic teaching. Is it consistent with what we know of as scripture? If it's not, it's not from God. So the only way to, to distinguish a true prophet from a false prophet is to judge their prophecies, and that's exactly what these other prophets, I believe, were called to do. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. 
Again, the issue is orderliness. Even prophecies must be done one at a time. If not one at a time, then what would happen? Folks would not be edified. So orderliness and edification go together. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And then look at verse 32. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. That's the other reason that I think that the others are other prophets who are judging the prophecies. I think it means that the prophets should expect to have their utterances judged by other prophets and that any given prophet must be subject to the other prophets. If you aren't a person who deals well with authority, then you won't deal well with being a prophet in this context. Look at verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And the word, this is very interesting because the word for confusion here, God's not a God of confusion. The word for confusion is, is a bit more than just you know, craziness. The word means something like opposition to established authority disorder, unruliness. Okay, so it's an authority thing that's going on here. So it's not just disorderliness, but disorderliness due to a lack of respect of authority. And God is all about orderliness and respect for proper authority that he has established in the church. Uh, last night I got on the, uh, the website of a well-known charismatic preacher who is now deceased. His name is, uh, his name is Kenneth, Kenneth Hagin. Before he died, he penned this uh, short article explaining from this text, 1 Corinthians 14. He was explaining why Paul told people to speak in tongues. And what he says is almost the opposite of what Paul says in this text. But this is what he says. He says there's a devotional use and there's a spiritual edification use for speaking in tongues. Here's a quote. There is the devotional use of tongues... 1 Corinthians 14.2 says, For he who speaks in a tongue addresses God, not man. No one understands him. He's talking of divine secrets in the Spirit. Here, Paul is talking about the individual Spirit-filled believer employing the use of tongues in his prayer life. Through speaking in tongues, you can pray out the plan of God for your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then he talks about tongues for spiritual edification. That sounds a little more promising, but he says this. Tongues are also used as a means of spiritual edification. For whom? Well, the Bible says, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself. The word edifieth means to build up. Further down in the chapter, the Amplified Bible reads, My spirit, by the Holy Spirit within me, prays, but my mind is unproductive. And then listen to this. So praying in tongues is not for mental edification, but for spiritual edification. Now, that is the opposite of everything that Paul has been saying up to in this, to this point. The reason that tongues edify is not to edify yourself primarily, but to edify the rest of the congregation. How does it edify them? Because they understand it. Either they know the language or it's translated for them. He says it's not for mental edification, but for spiritual edification. I'm telling you, those two things are not opposites. They go together. When you are edified in your mind, you are being edified by the Spirit. That is spiritual edification. What do you think Paul means when he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? 
That spiritual transformation of your mind is, it goes together. This teacher, Kenneth Hagin, goes on from there, and none of the reasons that he gives for tongues involve edifying other people in the congregation. It's all about edifying yourself. So after reading this article, I went on YouTube and found a video of him demonstrating how this plays out in a corporate worship service. In this service, he's standing before a group of people about this size, and he explains briefly 1 Corinthians 14. He himself self starts talking so-called in tongues, which really just sounds like a series of random syllables being repeated one after the other. A crowd of people gather at the front of the church, and they start doing the same thing he's doing. And this goes on for about 20 minutes. Everyone talking at once. No one talking a language that anybody can understand and nobody giving an interpretation. It goes for 20 minutes. People all speaking like this. It's a cacophony of vocalizing with no meaning or interpretation. Now here's the problem. There's no order in this. And yet, this is sadly how this gift is carried out in many places. Not all places, but in many places today. With no interpretation which means that there was no edification, which means that this should never have happened this way. Now, I made the case for cessationism in a previous message. I know there are some here who may not agree with that point of view. That's okay. But no matter what your view is on the question of the continuation of the gifts or the cessation of the gifts, all sides of that question have to agree that the gifts must be ordered according to the instructions of 1 Corinthians 14 or they're illegitimate. Sadly, that's not what often happens in, in many places where these gifts are allegedly carried out. But it ought to be the baseline expectation. Okay, so Paul speaks as to- of tongues as judgment, worship as orderly, and finally, women as silent. And this final point actually is a part of the orderliness point. But let's see what Paul says in verse 33, second part of verse 33. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Now, look what he says here, as in all the churches of the saints, which means what I'm telling you is not a novelty for the church in Corinth. This is how it's supposed to happen in all the churches. And in fact, this is what all the other churches are doing. What are they doing? Verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. Now, when you read that, you got to think, what in the world is going on with this verse? Does Paul really mean to say that women can never say anything in a worship service? Some people read the verse in this way. I think that that is a misreading of this verse. Why? Well, for starters, if you take this as an absolute blanket prohibition on women saying anything in a gathering of the church's worship, for starters, it would create a hopeless contradiction with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5, which says that women were praying and prophesying in the church. You will remember back in chapter 11, Paul does not rebuke their praying and prophesying in the church. On the contrary, he gives them instructions on how to do it in the right way in a way that allows them to speak, but at the same time honors 
male headship within the church. I think 1 Corinthians 11 is showing that women were participating with their voices in the church in certain ways, but only in ways that honored male headship. Women prophesying in the assembly was in keeping with what the Apostle Peter said was characteristic of the new covenant gift of the Spirit predicted in Joel 2. You remember this from Acts chapter 2 and verse 17? It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Who's going to prophesy? Sons and daughters. So back to 1 Corinthians 14. If you take verse 34 to be an absolute prohibition on women speaking at all in a worship gathering, then you've adopted an interpretation that I think makes chapter 14 to contradict chapter 11 and contradict what Peter said was supposed to happen in the assembly in Acts chapter 2. And then going further back, what Joel predicted would happen. That cannot be because God cannot contradict himself. Now, that apparent contradiction, however, has led some interpreters to suppose maybe these verses in chapter 14 are not really from Paul. Maybe some scribe came along after Paul and slipped them in. The only problem with that view is that every single Greek manuscript that we have includes these verses. There's a handful of manuscripts in which these verses appear after verse 40, but none where they don't appear at all. But just because they appear later in like a handful of manuscripts is not evidence that those verses aren't original to Paul. It's evidence that some scribes sought to preserve the flow of Paul's argument about prophecy. They were wrong to do that, but we would be doing worse than the scribes who moved the verses if we were to just rip them out of the Bible, yet that's what some people try to do. So that's not a good answer to this. No, these verses are original to Paul, just like what Paul wrote in chapter 11 was original to him. So does that mean that we have a contradiction here? No, it doesn't mean that. If we read these verses in context, it's very clear what's going on here. Paul is commanding the women to keep silent in a certain context. The judgment of prophecies. Remember what Paul just said in verses 29 and 32. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. In verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Prophets are supposed to not only prophesy, but also to evaluate other prophecies to see whether they are true. Why? Because spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. If you are a prophet, that means that you have to submit to the evaluation of other prophets. But this creates a potential problem, doesn't it? What happens if a husband prophesies and his wife is a prophet as well? Is the husband supposed to be subject to his wife during the judgment of prophecies? In other words, do we suspend headship, the creation principle that Paul explains in 1 Corinthians? Are we supposed to suspend headship during the worship service so we can have prophecies? Paul is saying, no, that's not what we do. That would be a contradiction of, of headship. So he's saying, no, we're not going to do that. Paul does not want anything to happen in worship that would upset the headship principle. So he tells women in this context to refrain from the judgment of prophecies. So it's not an absolute silence, I don't think here, but silence whenever prophecies are being judged. And so she does this out of deference to the male leadership in the church. Notice that the explanation in verse 34 indicates that headship is the issue. 
The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, which is the same word that's used in verse 32 to describe the spirits of prophets being subject to prophets. A woman cannot be subject to her husband or the male leadership of the church while simultaneously expecting them to submit to her judgments about prophecy. So Paul says that the women won't participate in that. So the judgment of prophecies is like teaching in this sense, which Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12, a woman shouldn't teach or exercise authority over a man. Paul says here, they should be silent for this reason. Be in submission as the law also says, which I think is a reference to the order of creation in Genesis chapter 2. If there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church which I think he means if a woman has a question about a prophecy, she should reserve all discussions for private conversations with her husband. She shouldn't raise questions or objections during the congregational worship service. Why? He says it's shameful for her to speak this way in the church. And again, he's not against women speaking altogether. He acknowledges that they're praying out loud and prophesying out loud in the assembly. He simply does not want them to evaluate prophecies in the assembly because that would violate the headship principle. Again, what this means is that we go beyond the example of Scripture if we foreclose what Paul clearly allows, women praying and sharing God's revelation during worship services. Likewise, it would also be going beyond what Scripture says and a violation of headship for women to teach or to exercise authority in corporate worship. Both of those things are true. We must not adopt any practice that would upend the order that God has established for the home, an order which includes male headship, and that's what's reflected in these verses. Verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones to whom it is reached? Which, by which Paul is saying, you're not the sole locus of God's word. Word of God didn't just come to you. It didn't, just, it didn't come from you either. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Which means, if you're going to stand up and participate in prophesying in a church, you better submit to the apostolic instructions about how those prophecies are supposed to be carried out. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Anyone who refuses to recognize this authority on Paul's part should be refused to be recognized as anything in the church. If this person won't submit to what God's word says about the exercise of gifts, that person has no right to be recognized and listened to in the church. Verse 39, so my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So Paul's not down on prophecy or tongues. He welcomes them. But what does he want? Last verse. But all things should be done decently and in order. Paul simply wants all these gifts to achieve what God designed them to achieve, the edification of the body. That can only happen if they are done in a way that everybody can benefit from them, from what is being spoken. The tongues must have an interpretation and the prophets and tongue speakers must speak one at a time and be subject to the evaluation of other prophets. Now, for some reason people tend to associate the work of the Spirit with unplanned spontaneity. I'm not saying that the Spirit can't work sometimes through unplanned spontaneity. But in this text, he's saying 
Paul is saying that things ought to be done decently and in order. You know what that means? It means that the Spirit attends to order and to discipline, not to disorder and to unruliness. That is why, frankly, we do things the way that we do here. We want our worship services to unfold every week decently and in order. We don't just hand the microphone over to anyone. We don't just show up with no plan. No, we try to plan these services so that the word is at the center of everything. We try, we try to pray the word. We try to sing the word. We try to preach the word. And we try to display the word in the cup and in the bread at the supper. All of this that we're doing is calculated to put God's voice at the center of it all that we do and say when we come together. Why? Because that is how God's people will be edified. That is how unbelievers will be called to repentance and to faith. And if we aren't doing that, then we aren't doing anything. We might be entertaining, but we won't be edifying. And God has called us to edify and to call sinners to repentance. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use this word to strengthen our commitment to making your word central in our worship services. Father, I pray that you would make us committed to making it clear. Make us as pastors and teachers committed to doing everything we can to make the word clear and accessible to as many people as possible. Father, I pray as a church we would be committed to expository preaching and that we would never turn from it. I pray that in the songs and in everything that we do, your word would stand forth so that your people and those who are not yet your people might see that Jesus Christ has been crucified and raised for sinners and that he has offered us forgiveness and eternal life through what he has done for us, if we would but believe. Lord, I pray you would do this work in and among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.